Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips. Uh, today's speaker, we have uh, uh, Dr. Hal Needham. We've had him here several times now. Uh, uh, over that, and I like getting the speakers a couple of times. I learn something new about them each time before we go on the air. And if this was a trivia question, no one would get it right. Because uh, can you imagine uh, a meteorologist of the, of the stature of Hal Needham was a former Moroccan tour guide, taking tours of uh, Americans probably and Europeans also into the Sahara Desert out of Casablanca in in, uh, in uh, Morocco. Uh, He's currently uh, uh, spending his time becoming a, a, quite an expert on, uh, on storm surges from tropical cyclones with a focus on the Gulf of Mexico. We had a lot of activity here this year, and he's going to update us on what he's found so far. He operates out of Galveston, but he's coming to us from Gulf Shores, Alabama, where he was attending an Association of State Floodplain Manager meeting. So, uh, Hal, it's all yours. Well, thank you for the warm introduction. Alex and Tim really appreciate the invite to be here today. I'm going to share my screen and we'll get started here in, in just a moment. Can you all see my screen there? Okay, fantastic. Yes. We will uh, go here from the start. Yeah, that is true. We, we were chit-chatting this morning and I, way back in the day before I did hurricane research, I actually lived in the country of Morocco for several years. I was a tour guide and a linguist in the Sahara Desert region. That's a pretty fascinating part of the world. No hurricanes. They have a cold ocean current. Actually, the geography of Morocco is almost identical to California. Cold ocean current uh, of really robust agricultural region along the coast, high mountains, and then desert east of the mountains. But in recent years, the last 12 years or so, I've been living along the U.S. Gulf Coast doing hurricane and coastal flood research. And today I'm coming to you from Gulf Shores, Alabama, the site of Category 2 Hurricane Sally's landfall last month. There have been some really interesting stories on the ground here. As Bill Reed mentioned, I am based in Galveston, Texas. I'm lead scientist with CNC Catastrophe and National Claims, a company out of Mobile, Alabama. I work through them. And so they have more than 30 years experience being on the ground in flood zones and helping people get back on their feet. What really hit me in the drive from Texas over to Alabama this week was Texas has really had different impacts from these tropical storms. Obviously, our friends in southwest Louisiana got hit very hard this year and then impacts all the way through Mississippi and coming, you know, driving eight hours and still seeing trees down in Alabama. It was just the, the extent of it really hit me this week. I've been in four landfalling hurricanes this season and two tropical storms, and I just wanted to share some stories that I've picked up along the road and stories of resiliency, stories of impacts from flood and wind, and share my perspective and from a climatological perspective as well. I'm a hurricane and flood scientist and really have been looking at coastal flood impacts, especially over the past decade. And so I want to start by sharing some things I saw on the ground in tropical storm Cristobal in Mississippi in June. So this was about a six-foot storm surge that pushed in here to the Mississippi coast. Not bad for a fairly weak tropical storm that made landfall in southeast Louisiana. These are all pictures I took in Cristobal. And one of the big impacts was an amazing amount of Louisiana marsh grass that pushed up on the shore of Mississippi coast. And the perspective here, this is right as this tourist rich area of Mississippi was pulling out of the pandemic. Very important for their beaches to be open in June. And they actually had to close beaches for the better part of a week to clear all of this marsh grass. This marsh grass had a lot of dead reptiles and rodents and um, a, lot of, a lot of decaying material, not safe for public health. So it had to be removed from the beaches and closed down tourism there right as they were trying to pull out a pandemic. Getting into July, we had Hurricane Hannah rapidly develop into a hurricane and make landfall south of Corpus Christi, really between South Padre and Corpus. I was in Corpus and documented the storm surge. Pretty good storm surge pushed in there to Corpus Christi. I consider Corpus Christi one of the luckiest cities in recent decades in the U.S. I run the U.S. storm surge database called U-Surge, and this is really the first comprehensive storm surge history for coastal locations from Texas to Maine. 
Corpus Christi has been awful lucky. They've had seven big surges in history, but Hannah actually produced the highest storm surge on record since Hurricane Allen back in 1980. So the water got up as of late that Saturday morning and when I was there, the water was approaching six feet and that was the highest they had in 40 years. So Corpus has been pretty lucky, but they've had some big surges in the past and it's a matter of time until these places get hit again in the future. Obviously, one of the really big impacts this year was Hurricane Laura in August making landfall as a strong Category 4, almost Category 5 hurricane in southwest Louisiana with maximum sustained winds of 150 miles an hour. It was the strongest hurricane to strike Louisiana since the 1850s. Just surveying the damage on the on the coast and inland, it was extensive. This is a picture from the southern part of Lake Charles. Anytime you start seeing Category 3 and Category 4 winds, as the Saffir Simpson hurricane wind scale shows us, you start getting a lot of really substantial wind damage, especially when you get up into Cat 3, 4, and 5. And these are photos I took in late August in southwest Louisiana, parts of Lake Charles, extensive utility poles down, extensive structural damage from the winds. Even getting into parts of downtown Lake Charles, tremendous amount of winds blown out and a lot of impacts right there in the urban corridor. It was really really something to see when we got into the category three and category four winds. Uh, whole failures of entire walls and, and larger structures as well were pretty evident on the ground. Well, what about the storm surge really as the storm was moving towards the northern Gulf Coast. The National Hurricane Center said it would be an unsurvivable storm surge that in social media and, and media in general became a bit controversial. Was this really an unsurvivable storm surge? There was some criticism that perhaps it was overblown, but as I spent time in the disaster zone, I saw the fortunate thing with Hurricane Laura was that the biggest impacts were in a fairly rural region. It made landfall just east of, well, right around Cameron, Louisiana, but the big storm surge was east of Cameron over towards Creole in a fairly unpopulated region. But just from surveying it on the ground, I found evidence of storm surge inundation exceeding 10 feet above ground level, which in the area I was at would have been about a 13 foot storm surge. And I knew it would have been even, even a higher storm surge farther to the east. The, the day I was there, I, it made landfall on a Thursday, I believe. I was there on a Saturday on the ground and I, I could not get to the area of peak surge. There was still water over the roadways in those areas. So I think the, the latest I heard from the National Weather Service my friends that do surveillance, it looks like it could have been about a 20-foot storm surge, and that would make it the highest storm surge on record in Louisiana, a top 10 for the Gulf Coast. And this really, if you were not in a high or very incredibly well-built building, it probably would have been unsurvivable there along the coast. This is a photograph I took near Cameron, Louisiana, right after Laura made landfall. And this is what we call rafted debris. You can see all this marsh grass that's elevated up onto these platforms and that's just telltale signs that the water level got that high and you could actually see where the, the direction of the moving water as well wrapped around those poles this is a catholic church in cameron louisiana that was devastated by both wind and storm surge you can see surge just gutted this building on the ground these were a few days after Laura, I actually spent three different trips in Hurricane Laura's disaster zone. My first trip after the storm, I could not get cell phone to work. I could not even make a phone call or send a text message, let alone surf the web. Uh, on my second trip back in, all of a sudden my cell phone worked great. And I was wondering what the difference was until I saw this, the cellular networks put a blimp up there that was actually tethered to the ground, but to provide uh, cell service. I don't know if this was AT&T or Verizon, I have to research it, but there were definitely these cell phone blimps up there and they made all the difference with connectivity. I think that was a big resiliency lesson I learned that these blimps do work. And it's important because there are a lot of construction workers and relief workers and and different uh, utility uh, linemen, things like that in after the storm that need cell phone connectivity. And those cell phone blimps helped a lot. So as Hurricane Laura was barreling towards the Southwest Louisiana coast, I was in the Southern part of Lake Charles where that star is. And I like to document very specific things with hurricanes on the ground. I found a location in a very well built parking garage in Lake Charles and my goal was I, I knew the worst of it was going to come in at night. I have these very powerful spotlights and I was going to film the impacts of a category three, category four hurricane on these buildings. And just to really get an idea about roof failure and things like that. And I, I actually had a concrete wall to my South and a concrete wall to my East. I felt very secured and I was able to put my black car there right in the corner where there would be no wind flow. And it, it, I, I thought that would be a pretty safe location. This one of the safer 
ones I could find in the city. And if things even got dicier than that, right next to that was a concrete stairwell with no windows. That's about the best possible thing you can see as a storm chaser. There's stairs going up in case there's flood water. That, that's exactly what you want to find for a secure location. I felt very safe, but I had an interaction with a security guard about two hours before the first bands came in who said, I can't be in the location. And so that put me out into the streets of Lake Charles with Hurricane with Hurricane Laura barreling towards me. So, uh, you know, I was there, I was uh, had my headlamp ready. I calibrated my barometer. I was all ready for field work, had my lights ready, was really ready to roll, but security guard said I had to get out of the place. I've seen enough really catastrophic wind damage that I don't like to just be floating around hurricane areas in a high impact zone. I've seen some devastating damage from wind. And so I often have a plan A, B, and C before a storm. My plan A was to be in the impact zone filming. My plan B was actually to stay in Galveston where I live and, and document the weaker side of the storm. There's value to that in that sometimes, uh, sometimes the media maybe overplays some of the impacts. And if you can document that there is not much damage in a weaker area, that can be a value too. My plan B was to be in Galveston. So I just went back home actually for the storm documented some coastal erosion. This is a picture I took from the steps of the seawall of the storm surge from Laura kind of breaching the dunes there. So I was not actually on the ground in Laura. I went back to the disaster zone about two days afterwards. One of the lessons from Laura was rapid intensification. So look at this in the 24 hours before landfall, Laura intensified 45 miles an hour in the wind speed, going from a category one to a category four. And this has been a pattern in recent years. And in fact, over the last four hurricane seasons, we've seen four hurricanes intensify at least 40 miles an hour before landfall, really starting with Harvey in 2017, which intensified to a category four hurricane right before landfall. Then Michael in 2018 intensified 45 miles an hour in the 24 hours before landfall. And then this year, both Hannah and Laura intensified at least 40 miles an hour in the 24 hours before landfall. That's a lot of rapid intensification. And that creates all kinds of complications for things like evacuation. When you have a rapidly intensifying hurricane, you don't have as much lead time. And sometimes we can get blindsided a little bit. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this and put it in the context of the bigger hurricane climatology for the Gulf Coast. So adapting a list that was posted from Jeff Masters and Bob Henson with the old Cat 6 Weather Underground weather blog, these are the nine hurricanes since 1950 that have intensified at least 40 miles an hour in the 24 hours before landfall. And something really interesting when we look at this list is we now have four of these in the past four seasons. So in the past four hurricane seasons, we have four hurricanes that have intensified at least 40 miles an hour in the 24 hours before landfall. That's one per year. Look at the first 50 years of this list from 1950 to 1999. We only see three hurricanes doing that in a 50 year period, which is about one every 17 years. So is this, a, is this a trend? Is this climate change? Or is this just a period of random hyperactivity? Well, you know, let's look, see these rapidly intensifying hurricanes. We can be quick to say this is climate change, but in climate science, there are two types of data. So one type of data are discrete data. They're things that do not happen all the time. Hurricanes, thunderstorms, tornadoes, forest fires. Those are not always happening. They're called discrete. We have another kind of data called continuous. So continuous data are things that are always happening like temperature and humidity. We always have a temperature. We always have a humidity. So for example, with these wildfires, people are saying this is climate change. Well, we really need to get into the humidity records and the continuous data to really know, is this really a climate change signature or just a random period of hyperactivity? So I wanted to do the same with these rapidly intensifying hurricanes. So this is a sea surface temperature map from August 20th, and you can see the water temps quite warm there in the Gulf. But I was curious, you know, do we see a trend in the water temps? Do we see a trend in some of these continuous climate variables? We don't have water temperature data that go back to the 1800s per se, but we do have weather records that go back that far in my hometown there of Galveston, Texas. So we have 150 years of weather data. We have the longest weather records west of the Mississippi River. And there's something really interesting that we can start to look at as far as climate trends, looking at these Galveston weather records going back to 1871. 
And let me give you a hint on what we can look at there. Look at this weather map from Tuesday, September 1st, and you can see the circulation there. That shows really persistent and long fetch, uh, a long line that these winds are blowing from south to north along the western Gulf. I put a yellow star there where Galveston is, and you can see there's hundreds of miles of south wind blowing over the Gulf. And in Galveston, we can get weeks in a row of winds from the south or southeast, pretty much blowing onshore over this warm water in the western Gulf. And those are really the predominant wind directions for much of the summer. In Galveston, we get these really prolonged, again, we can go 7, 10, 14 days in a row and just get an onshore wind. And there's something really interesting with that is we can start to look at the overnight water, uh, the overnight air temperatures. And the reason I'm talking about overnight is that at nighttime, you don't have sunshine to deal with. And also, we have less precipitation often at night. So I was curious to look at the overnight temperatures and see if there's a correlation because they're blowing over this warm pool of water there in Galveston. And I wanted to see if there's a a trend in the overnight temperatures. And so this is an analysis I did looking at the number of hot nights in Galveston since 1900. So 121 years of data, I define a hot night as a temperature of at least 84 degrees Fahrenheit. And you can see there, there are no hot nights from 1900 to 1926. In 1927, we get our first hot night. Then we start to see them increase, especially in the 80s and 90s. But notice something here, the, the orange numbers here starting in 1995, we have our first night with an 85 degree minimum temperature in Galveston. And then we, we you know, see some areas of peaking, uh, especially getting around 2010, 2011. But look in the recent years here. Last year was the first time we ever saw an overnight low temperature of 86 in Galveston. And this year was the first time we ever saw an overnight low temperature of 87 in Galveston. We had four nights at 87 this year. So it never happened in 121 years until this year. This year we had four of them. So really uh, looking at the fact that the winds predominantly are blowing from the south or southeast in Galveston, and we're seeing what looks to be a really dramatic trend in hot nights in Galveston, I think we can make a connection. And it's a research study I'm doing with some friends at East Tennessee State University looking at uh, the wind directions and the climatology. But it looks like there may be a trend that we can, we can imply that the water temperatures there in the Western Gulf may be increasing over what they used to be because we see these, this dramatic trend and the number of hot nights in Galveston, and almost all of these hot nights have wind blowing from the south or southeast. And so we can see there where I circled that we have this uh, recent trend of 86 and 87 degree nights that we never saw since really probably the late 1800s. I can go back to 1871 as I extend that analysis. So what does this mean? Well, Kerry Emanuel at MIT published a paper called, Will Global Warming Make Hurricane Forecasting More Difficult? And something interesting I found in this paper is that he wrote, the analysis found the odds of a hurricane intensifying by 70 miles an hour or greater in the 24 hours just before landfall were once every 100 years in the climate of the late 20th century. But in the climate of the year 2100, these odds increased to once every five to 10 years. So it looks like this, these rapidly intensifying hurricanes getting up to as much as say 70 miles an hour in the 24 hours before landfall, the models suggest we should start to see this more with warming water temperatures. And so the other thing we, we've known is that we've had tremendous rainfall events in the, in the Gulf Coast region in recent years, right? The, the hybrid storm in Louisiana in 2016, Hurricane Harvey in Texas in 2017, Tropical Storm Imelda last year in Southeast Texas put 43 inches of rain, not far from Beaumont. And the other thing we see is that warmer ocean equals more rain. So this blog post by Jeff Masters with Scientific American uh, points to scientific research that shows for every one degree Celsius or 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, height of ocean warming, we see 7% more moisture. And hurricanes and tropical storms like to collect this moisture. So perhaps models suggest that we would see 10 to 15% more rain for every time we warm the ocean surface by one degree C. So that's a, a big thing. We've been seeing these intensifying hurricanes. We saw two rapidly intensifying landfalling hurricanes in the Gulf this year. And some of the in indications to me seem to point that this could be a climate change signature there with the warmer water temperatures leading to more fuel for these hurricanes and also potentially more rain. Well, I talked about in Hurricane Laura how I wanted to photograph and, and video these 
two houses in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and look at the impacts of the storm and how security kicked me out of the parking garage and I was not able to, to do this project. I was a little frustrated with that, but I understand their concern and I never want to be reckless in a, in a storm. So a couple weeks later, I was going into Hurricane Sally in Alabama though, and I thought, you know, there have to be ways that I can get into places and safely document storms. And obviously, obviously security needs to be tight. You don't want looters, but uh, for a scientist who wants to be say in a parking garage, maybe there are creative ways to get into these places. So as I was trying to get into Hurricane Sally, I wanted to get down to Dauphin Island where it looked like the eye may go over. And my friends in South Alabama said, how there's no way you can get into Dauphin Island. The police have already closed down the access routes. You can't get there. And so I thought, well, maybe I can be creative here. I'm, I'm, I learned along the way in disaster zones that there are different ways that you can look at currency. So uh, there's more than just money currency. And sometimes in disaster zones, I'm not a smoker, but sometimes cigarettes get you uh, pretty far in disaster zones. So a friend of a friend was in Dauphin Island, and he said, you know how I'm out here. I'm going to ride out the storm. I know of a secure place for you. And he's like, man, I could sure use some smoke. So I'm not a smoker, but I stopped in at a, at a rest stop. I picked up three packs of Winston light 100s. And uh, we worked out a deal where he, he talked to the police and said, uh, uh, this hurricane professionals coming in and bringing me hurricane supplies. And so we, we worked at it. That was at police checkpoint. Number two, they, they heard this, this weird guy named Hal is coming down with hurricane supplies, which were actually just uh, three packs of smokes for the, this guy on the Island that became a, a really interesting guy and a, and a, and a friend of mine now. And um, the other thing I learned is I didn't have any security badges, but I had a business card and I attached my business card to my lanyard and kind of held it out like it was a badge. And so the combination of the, uh, the business card on the, on the neck, on the necklace and the, the smokes for the guy that uh, we call them hurricane supplies. Uh, somehow or other, I was able to get through the checkpoints and get out there to Dauphin Island was a little bit rough go over debris. I think I was the last person in the Dauphin for Hurricane Sally, there was definitely storm surge over the road and some debris. I got in there, was able to document it from a parking garage and quite a little, quite a bit of wind debris there, even on the western eyewall of Sally. We, we took, I think, sustained winds maybe in the mid-70s. The worst of it was really around Gulf Shores, where I am today, and Orange Beach, Alabama. This, these were photographs from the marina there in Dauphin Island, where we have usage data going back uh, pretty extensively to the late 1800s and early 1900s. All the way over in Pensacola, the storm surge was surprisingly high. A lot of people were surprised. I, uh, I heard a lot of stories of people getting trapped in homes and things like that. This is a photograph of the surge in Pensacola. And Pensacola is one of our key usage cities that we have extensive data, high water marks for 60 hurricanes and tropical storms in usage. Hurricane Sally actually produced the fourth highest storm surge on record in Pensacola since the late 1800s, the other three being the hurricanes of 1906, 1926, and Hurricane Ivan in 2004. So Sally Surge was just really a fraction of an inch higher than Katrina in 2005. We put these all in U-Surge, which provides the first really credible storm surge history and data and analysis for coastal cities. I wanted to share a little bit. So in, in the days after Sally, I wanted to get into Gulf Shores and Orange Beach, but there was so much debris over the roads. I, I ended up bopping out to Biloxi where I've been working on a project. CNC was funded on a project through the Northern Gulf of Mexico Sentinel Site Cooperative in partnership with Dauphin Island Sea Lab, the city of Biloxi and Mississippi, Alabama Sea Grant. So I went out there and we've been working on this really interesting project in part of Biloxi that's very economically important to the city this project area actually has a quite a variety in elevation. So we have some areas that are higher than 20 feet. Other areas are less than four feet, a lot of ground elevation change. And as you know, if you spend time in these coastal communities, some buildings are elevated really high. And a lot of these older buildings that were built before the FEMA building regulations are what we call slab on grade. They're just basically houses on the ground level. And so we see a lot of that in the city. We've done some extensive work to get elevation certificates from the city, also GPS data. We were getting out there and, um, and actually measuring the elevation of these buildings, street level imagery like uh, Google Street View and other sources. We basically use every method we can find to build inventories of building elevations. And this is a map that just showing the building elevations for over 900 buildings in this key area of Biloxi. And you can see quite a variety for, for a, an area near the coast, about 26% of the buildings are higher 
than 18 feet and 12% are less than six feet. And we were able to compare these with, for example, the FEMA flood zone. So about 32% of the buildings are either not in a FEMA flood zone or they're built higher than the base flood elevation, the required building level. But about two thirds of the building are actually elevated lower than FEMA's base flood elevation. You might say, how can that be? How can you be lower than the FEMA guidelines? Again, in these historic communities, a lot of buildings were built more than 60, 70 years ago, and they've been grandfathered in, and they're very low and very vulnerable to flooding. A part of this mapping work that we do is to identify those areas that are most vulnerable. We also go back, uh, this, this year I completed the first comprehensive storm surge history for Biloxi, going through old journal articles and scientific reports and old newspapers. And you get a little bit of a flavor th for these coastal communities as well. This is a newspaper article from Hurricane Andrew in 1992, and you can see the subheadline there it says threat of Hurricane Andrew can't stop gambling fever. This is Biloxi, darn it. We're going to gamble whether there's a hurricane or not. We were able to use these types of newspaper and other data to build the first comprehensive database for Biloxi storm surges with 33 hurricanes and tropical storms. Work closely with the city on this. This is Rick Stickler, who is the building code official there in Biloxi with the Department of Community Development. Rick is a fantastic guy, does a lot for the community. And he and I recognize one of the concerns with Biloxi, there's no tide gauge in Biloxi. So in real time, it can be a challenge to document the water, the water level. And so we actually worked together in the days after Sally, and I spent a lot of time in hardware stores and over in Hobby Lobby and different places. And we actually built this, what we call a community flood information system. And I, I wanna share how this went. So in September, I came over to Hurricane Sally in Alabama. While I was waiting for the roads to open up to get into Orange Beach and places like that, I bopped over to Biloxi, spent a few days with Rick. We built this community flood information system. And then before I could get back to Alabama, Tropical Storm Beta had a bullseye right on the Houston-Galveston and Upper Texas coast. In fact, at one point, Beta was forecast to be a slow-moving hurricane dumping 15 to 20 inches of rain. This was going to be a major flood threat to the town where I live. So I took this community flood information system that we built. I went back home and installed it. This is a photograph I took when I got back to Galveston there was extensive saltwater flooding in parts of the city that are really low-lying this this is almost predominantly from saltwater, not from storm, not from rainfall. This is storm surge flooding. And what we did is we installed these new community flood information system gauges around the city. Let me explain how these gauges work. There are two poles. This is very simple. It's just PVC pipe with basically a cloth tape measure from Hobby Lobby that's that I use packing tape to secure it and we zip tie it to the to a pole. But what's really interesting about this is we have two poles. One pole measures the water depth above ground level. The other is calibrated in the same system as the elevation certificates. And so uh, it, without getting into too much complexity, there's a datum or an arbitrary vertical line called the North American Vertical Datum of 1988. When you get an elevation certificate, that's the, that's the scale of your of your measurement of your home elevation. And so this is a home where we installed these two flood meters. This was a home with um, some boat slips in a basically had docking. This is about 20 miles south of Galveston. And when we put these two poles, so the pole on the right, it says AGL, that's above ground level, or in this case, above the bulkhead on their dock. And it showed 18 inches of water. But then the, the pole on the left, it says NAVD. So that's, that's the same system as your elevation certificates. And that says 66 inches of water. So that's, again, in the same system as all the elevation certificates in the community. So this is what an elevation certificate looks like. We can see there, if it says that you're 7.6 feet, one of the big mistakes that 99% of people make is that they think that means 7.6 feet above sea level. It does not. It's 7.6 feet above this thing called a datum. And so uh, we're going to talk in a minute a little more about that. But we were able to uh, get citizen science observers. This is Jim and Pat Egler in Sea Isle, Texas. You can see the flood meters that were zip tied to their their dock slip there in the back. And Jim and Pat were celebrating their 47th wedding anniversary, and they spent it taking observations for the storm, if you can believe it, staying at home. And I asked if they could take a photograph every three hours of the water level. That would be great. I did not expect to get an observation at three in the morning, but I did. They took observations right through the night. And I had more than 12 people in this community say, we would love to be involved. We'd love to be flood observers. You're welcome to have my elevation certificate to calibrate these poles. And basically from using all of these data, 
from Jim and Pat's flood meter that we installed at their house and other elevation certificates in the community, we could create real-time flood inundation maps. And so basically, if you're in yellow or green, you're dry. If you're in blue, you're wet. And it shows how deep the water was on in your area. And we were able to use the local observations to do an inundation map. And really something I learned from this is that people do not care how high the storm surge is. People care about two things. How high will the water get on my property? And when will it get that high? Everybody wants to know, is the water going to flood my garage? Is the water going to flood my house? And so getting back to this, this becomes very interesting. So in the days before, for example, when Hurricane Delta came, I was carefully watching the Galveston flood gauge or the, the tide gauge. When Delta was still in the Caribbean, the water level in Galveston was already two and a half feet at high tide. So if a storm surge is forecast, say, to come in at six feet, people assume that, that when they look at their elevation certificate, this says they're 7.6 feet above sea level. In, in the days before Delta, the water level in Galveston was already two and a half. So it, people are not, you know, in this case, they might assume they're 7.6 feet above sea level. They're more like five feet above sea level. And so just to show you an example, this is a, a GPS instrument that I took out into Biloxi in March. And when I put this pole on the ground, the elevation of the ground there at the bottom of the pole is 1.53 feet. I estimated the high tide mark there was 1.67 feet. So again, water is not at zero. Water is often at one and a half to two and a half feet on the system of our elevation certificates. The, to summarize, what I'm trying to say here is that many people are one to three feet closer to the water than they realize. So going back to here, someone might say a six foot storm surge, I'll be okay. No, they won't because we're counting six feet starting from two and a half feet. And so our, our goal with these community flood information systems are basically to put these poles out and to measure everything into the same system that your elevation certificates in. So imagine if 7.6 feet is 91 inches. Imagine if this photograph came from your next door neighbor and you had evacuated, you know, your house is elevated to 91 inches and you know, the water in the storm, on the pole on the left got to 66 inches. You know that your house is dry. And that's what we're going to try to do here is to deploy these in communities to convert everything to the same system that people's elevation certificate is. And, and um, many homes have them. If you have a federally backed mortgage in a flood zone, you often have a, an elevation certificate and you can obtain one from an official survey or an engineer or an architect. And this is a way that communities can really partner with us. So if your HOA or your neighborhood wants to partner with us in this project, get in touch with me. We'd like to put these flood meters out and we'd like to convert the National Hurricane Center and the National Weather Service storm surge forecast into the same system that everyone's house is measured in. Again, in the same um, datum, you can see here on this on this elevation certificate, it says the datum is 88. That's again, NAVD 88. It's just the, the datum or the system that all these are measured in. This community flood information system is mobile as well. This is a, a gauge that I took and deployed just last week in Delco. Louisiana, or I guess that was two weeks ago for Hurricane Delta. And this is a CNN meteorologist, Derek Van Dam, that was with me there. But these are gauges that we can deploy. All we need is a zip tie and we can deploy them at marinas, at people's houses, at um, boat docks, things like that. And we can calibrate and measure the water levels. Finally, I wanted to wrap up just with a few snapshots of what I saw in Delta something that really concerned me. When I, I travel the whole Gulf Coast, South Louisiana and the upper Texas coast are usually some of the best prepared areas for hurricane preparedness. This is the day before Delta hit, driving around South Louisiana and seeing a tremendous amount of debris out there that was left over from Laura. I talked to community officials and leaders in these communities and many of them said, look, we have, we're a small community. We have one or two dump trucks. Our dump truck goes to Jennings, Louisiana to drop off the debris. And there's a three hour wait for it to dispose of the debris we can only do two or three runs a day. We can only clear maybe two, one or two streets a day. So it takes maybe four to six months to really clean the debris out of some of these communities. And here came Hurricane Delta just six weeks after Laura. So driving around the day before Delta, I saw a lot of debris on the ground and this concerned me. Again, not out of negligence. This is back-to-back -back hurricanes hitting the same area. And this was a big concern. This is a, a dear friend of mine, lives in Sulphur, Louisiana, works with the National Weather Service. This was a pile of debris 
um, really right after Delta. And uh, so basically what happened is this is a mostly Lara debris in this yard. Hurricane Delta picked up the Lara debris and you can see there's a vehicle in the driveway and it smashed out the window. So this is basically Hurricane Delta picking up Hurricane Lara debris and smashing out car windows. Again, not out of negligence, just back-to-back -back hurricanes, the community can only respond so quickly. This is a house in Lake Charles. You can see a hole in the roof. That's a Lara hole. You can see tarps on the roof. Those tarps were put right after Hurricane Lara. Well, here, here comes Hurricane Delta shredding the tarps and putting more wind-driven rain into the same building and creating an, another flood impact. So these are things that have been talked about. This week, I was at the Alabama Association of Floodplain Managers meeting, and someone mentioned, you know, a lot of these states should do what Florida does and just require people to pay the... <clears throat> the hurricane deductible once on their insurance policy. So I think it changes by state, but imagine if you had to pay a $10,000 deductible to get your roof fixed, and then you get hit again a second time. And this is what, it, there's a lot of information in this picture. Again, a Hurricane Lara hole, tarps put in after Lara, and then here comes Hurricane Delta shredding the tarps and putting more flooding or more wind-driven rain into that house. I was on the ground in Delta doing my best to, to stream and to record live the storm surge. This is a screenshot I took from the Twitter feed. I was broadcasting live on Twitter and Facebook, just documenting the event the best I could. This area took a storm surge from both Lara and Delta. There was a high water mark on a grocery store, 33 inches above ground level. I think that was from Lara. I think Delta's was a little bit lower in the area. Delta also put a surprising amount of wind into coastal Texas. These are wind gusts, and this is a Houston-Galveston metro area. You can see here a pretty sharp gradient along the coast here. I think we had gusts to about 58 on Galveston Island. Getting into Bolivar Peninsula, we had gusts well into the 60s, and I think sustained winds actually hit 66 miles an hour at um, around Beaumont Port Arthur. So not hurricane force, but uh, Hurricane Delta was actually the strongest wind event out of Laura, Delta, and Beta along the upper Texas coast. You know, every storm really has a different mix of hazards. Finally, I want to wrap up with a story of resiliency. You know, we, we look at so much storm damage and so many stories of flood and, and wind hazards. And, and after a while, it can be a little bit overwhelming, especially in a year with a pandemic and other things going on. And I wanted to close out today with the best story of resiliency I found from traveling along the Gulf Coast in these four landfalling hurricanes and two tropical storms. So this is 18 hours after Hurricane Delta made landfall. As far as I know, Lake Arthur, Louisiana, really took a direct hit. I think there was a university anemometer or wind meter in Lake Arthur that measured sustained winds, I believe, around 77 with gusts into the 90s. So this area took hurricane force winds late on, basically it was Friday evening. I took this picture around midday on Saturday. This is 18 hours after a hurricane strike. I pulled over and I, it looked like this grocery store was open. And I looked over at the gas pumps, fully functional. So I walk into this store, completely air conditioned, completely lit. There's someone over there buying produce. I'm walking around saying, this is impossible. My, my cell phone doesn't even work. I'm in the heart of a hurricane strike here in South Louisiana. This grocery store is fully operational, fully air conditioned, fully lit, uh, fully functional. I went outside and sure enough, there's a generator humming. So I talked to some of the workers here and what they told me was six weeks before in Hurricane Laura, they lost power and they lost a lot of food and they were closed for an extensive amount of time. They learned a lesson. What they did was they cut their power from the city power supply before the strong winds even arrived. They went over to generator power before Delta even hit. They didn't lose a beat. They never lost power. They never lost food. And they said, the best part is we're here for the community. 18 hours after a hurricane strike, fully functional because they switched over to generator before the storm even hit. And it really hit me, man, these people keep getting hit again and again and again, but they're learning how to be more resilient. I mean, can you imagine many places in America that would take sustained winds in the upper seventies with gusts in the nineties and 18 hours later be fully functional? You, you would be hard pressed to find that anywhere. And these folks in South Louisiana, uh, really hard to see them getting back-to-back -back hits, but it almost gives me the chills to see this is what resiliency is all about, about learning lessons and saying, hey, the second time through, we're going to do it better, and we're going to be there. They said, we want to be here to support our community, and uh, that was huge because, again, you have a lot of relief workers, a lot of linemen. Uh, having open stores and gas pumps is a, a big step towards recovery, and that's what they did there in Lake Arthur. That was my best story of resiliency that I found traveling the Gulf Coast this year. Again, my name is Dr. Hal Needham. I'm lead scientist 
scientists with CNC catastrophe and national cl national claims. I'm based in Galveston. I work through an office here in Mobile, Alabama, but uh, shoot me a, a phone message, a text, an email. I love uh, just engaging with people. I really love being on the ground. That's the best thing with CNC. We've, they've been on the ground for more than 30 years working in, in these communities. I like to be on the ground, you know, hearing people's stories and doing a lot of this flood mapping and flood risk analysis really right there where the biggest vulnerabilities are. Again, a huge thanks to the National Tropical Weather Conference here. Um, Alex, Tim, Bill, I just appreciate you guys reaching out. And I, I've learned so much from the other speakers this year. You know, when, when things changed from the pandemic at first, I was like, I, I really want to get to South Padre and be part of this conference. But in, in a weird way, there were, there were some benefits, I think, that we went virtual. And um, I've loved watching the other presentations. And I hope people got something out of the presentation here today. And I don't know if we have time for a couple questions, but really appreciate y'all um, hosting me here today. And I, I hope everyone has a fantastic rest of the hurricane season and a quick recovery. Get unmuted there. Hell, I was just fantastic. I, uh, I got a lot of uh, tidbits there and uh, I guess we got plenty of time for questions. So uh, I'll, I'll start us off there. Uh, uh, I wasn't aware of the uh, blimp technology being used to restore uh, cell technology. How soon after the storm was that? I didn't catch that. So I, I was in this, the storm hit like a Thursday morning. So I was there all the, the first time I was there, it was like in the hours before the storm, everything's operational. I went back 48 hours after Laura hit and in the really Calcasieu Parish, uh, Cameron Parish, those areas, I couldn't text. I couldn't call. I certainly couldn't surf the web. It was a complete dead, uh, complete black zone uh, in the days after Laura. Then I went back, I believe it was the weekend after that. So I think it was about nine days, about 10 days after landfall. I went back again. It was, I think, two weekends after. So I think Laura hit on a Thursday. I think it was about nine to 10 days later. I went in and all of a sudden my cell phone works great. I'm like, how? wow, they, re, they repaired the towers. And then all of a sudden I noticed this blimp and locals on the ground said, no, those are that's the cellular network putting a blimp up there. I thought that is so cool and so important for the linemen, for all the people doing recovery. So that was, there was definitely came in about about a week, maybe maybe five to seven days after the storm, but it made a huge difference. Uh, I can imagine it gets being elevated like that. It gets a, a gives a broader coverage. For and you would be surprised how many people are in these zones. I mean, the residents are still gone if they're devastated by a cat four, but there are a lot of flood adjusters, a lot of relief workers. If these people can't communicate, it's a real challenge. Right. Right. Uh, I'm also was intrigued that I've been uh, hammering on people about the increase in, 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 uh, warm temperatures at night as a, a better signal on the climate change than most anything else. And I really like that slide you produced uh, there. And the, uh, the argument I get back is that we're in a, a, a heat island area. And I, I, I point to the, those temperatures are almost always when we're in a prolonged deep southerly flow. So, and the population on the island isn't appreciably different than it was hundred years ago. <laughs> so. Well I think yeah. heat island effect on those overnight lows in Galveston. Well, that's right. I mean, you have a long fetch of winds blowing over hundreds of miles of water, and then they're hitting the weather the weather instruments there in Galveston within a half mile of the coast. I mean, it's, they're right there on the coast. So, if this was in Houston or something, you maybe would have a, people would have an argument there. But these are instruments right on the coast, and like you said, it's about as urban as it was, you know, a long time ago. Yeah, Tim, you need to do something like that down in, in Brownsville. <laughs> no kidding, because because we saw those same kind of lows. Lou Lou is asking where you got the the historic nighttime low readings out of Galveston. So this was through the the Houston Galveston National Weather Service. I talked to them and they gave they showed me how I can get the monthly data. So I went month by month and just put it into an Excel, a big file, and just kind of. Uh, I'm not the world's best computer programmer. So I took one month at a time for 120 years. And I, I looked at June, July, August, September. I don't think there's been a hot night in May or October. So I just look at June, July, August, September. I built this back to 1900. And like this year, we had 27 hot nights from 1900 to 1926. It never happened once, you know? So we're, we're really seeing this, this trend of tremendously hot nights, but I've built it from 1900 to present using data from the National Weather Service office there. That's cool. Uh, another way you can uh, look at that. Another way to approach to doing that is, is, uh, is uh, 
the percentage of record uh, warm temperatures. Uh, so you just accumulate what, uh, all the records that are being set uh, uh, at the low temperature range there. And there's, you know, it's multiple times more warm than there are cool. You know, something really interesting too, Stan Blazik wrote a fantastic book on a century of Galveston weather from 1900 to 1999. And in that time, he gave a perspective right after the 1900 storm, there was this massive heat wave. And for them at the time, it was really hot right after the 1900 storm. I think highs were in the low to mid nineties, but the low temperatures were like 82 or 83 every night. Nowadays, that would be a cool night. I mean, we have these long stretches with 84, 85, 86, and a, an 82 degree night would be great. But back in the day in 1900, 82, 83 was a hot night for them, you know? So it's interesting to see how it's changed over time. It is. The, uh, the, and then the, to back to the hurricane issue there with the, uh, the warmer uh, ocean temperature is probably the major contributing factor to that, though there may be some atmospheric aspect also. Uh, uh, we're getting these little signals out. You have a, a, a different approach to it than, than others, but a couple of papers have been published in recent years that uh, say we are getting uh, uh, an increase in rapid intensification. And I think uh, uh, hopefully some studies on what the energy contributions are with the warmer ocean how that might play into that. Maybe we can come up with some pretty good definition to it over the years. And it is a bit complex. I also want to look at Austin and Dallas and some of these inland locations. Are they also seeing a spike in the number of hot nights? You know, I, I, we're going to still do some more digging on this and, and, and this paper we're putting together. But it is interesting to look at. And, you know, we don't have the tide gauge records since 1871 with water temp, but we have uh, overnight air temp since 1871 there on the island. Yeah, you might you might want to hit up uh, Dr. Nielsen Gammon up at the state climatologist. He may have already pulled some of that together. That's a great suggestion. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then the, the the future for that's almost it's almost shocking what Terry Emanuel uh, published there that the one in a hundred year event will trend or one in every 10 year event as far as rapid intensification. That's a serious problem on the evacuation decisions. Right, and he was talking there about a 70 mile an hour increase in the 24 hours before landfall. That's kind of at the upper threshold of what we've ever seen. And he was talking about that maybe be, maybe happening every five to 10 years. And like you said, that's a huge evacuation issue because you're going from, you know, like a, maybe a, what, a cat two to a cat five or a cat one to a cat four or, or, or more, you know? Yeah, and, and, and it, it, the current state of the science, uh, the skill at forecasting RI is, while better than 10 years ago, there's still a lot of missed events. Yeah, no, for sure. And the, the, another aspect of that is that uh, if a storm is weak, a lot of times, uh, unless you're really definitive on the intensification, it's hard to get people to react. They're going to want to wait and see if the storm really does get stronger before they go. Well, I thought about that with Hurricane Hannah this year. I mean, it, it made landfall there between South Padre and Corpus in a pretty rural area, but it, it went from a weaker tropical storm, I guess, to a, what, about 90 miles an hour at landfall. So if that had hit an urban corridor, I, I don't know if many people at all would have evacuated. Yeah, I was concerned with Laura because I think the the, the recent events of, of uh, uh, Rita and Ike were still fresh enough in people's mind that the uh, they didn't want any part of it, but you know, the time that decision had to be made, it was a category one storm. Yeah, you're right. And it, it did at one point, it looked like the Euro model was putting um, Laura as a very powerful hurricane, possibly into the Houston Galveston area. There, there was enough uncertainty that you're right. I think the evacuation decision had to be made before we knew exactly what would happen. Right. Hey, Tim, you got any other questions? I just want to, yeah, I just want to talk about the resilience just a little bit. You showed that store that, that did so well uh, the second time around. Did you see other incidents of that? Because, you know, sometimes you say the best prepared people for a storm are the ones who just went through one. Um, and oftentimes that's true. And, of course, the other side of that is all the debris out there that, you know, becomes a problem. But did you see other good examples of people who were better prepared the second time around this time? 
That's a really good question. I mean, I think it was hard that they were hit back to back. I know people, I mean, in South Louisiana, people are going to come together. People were responding the best they could. Uh, I guess what, what really hits me sometimes when I'm driving around and talking to people are the places that have a generator. Like sometimes you'll be driving through 20 miles of blackness at night and all of a sudden you see lights up ahead and it's, it's a gas station that's run off a generator. So uh, those are the ones that really hit me. I think the ones, because you can't just get a generator in that moment after you've been hit. That has to be planned ahead of time that, that you've secured a generator. You've, you've arranged this. You've, so uh, I've seen gas stations like that, that grocery store like that, but um, you know, I think more stories will come out, but that's, that, that story really hit me because they just completely changed their operation. There is a hospital in Lake Charles uh, did not evacuate for Laura and uh, patients were okay, but windows smashed and the winds were screaming through the hallways. I mean, it was scary. And then they, they evacuated for Delta. So they, they changed their evacuation policy in a couple of weeks and the, the store changed its whole, uh, energy policy in a couple of weeks. So just seeing people rapidly make changes in operations, that was really interesting to me because often you want to revisit these things in the off season, right? You want to sometime between October and, and May, a lot of people are making these decisions in these back-to-back Lara and Delta cases, people were changing operations uh, within a very short amount of time, just saying we have to do better the second time we're going to make changes. We're not done with the hurricane season yet. Obviously, there's still some time sure. to go. And Epsilon's still out there. Who knows what else could come up in the next few weeks? But what's your what's your one takeaway from this crazy 2020 season? Is there is there a takeaway? Something that you say, wow, this this is what makes this season stand out besides the sheer number of storms. Yeah, the, the, the sheer number of storms and the, the impacts. And, you know, what really hit me is the number of people impacted, not just by the hurricane conditions, but I just talked to people yesterday here in Alabama that live in Biloxi, and they're like, we were in of uncertainty three times, like New Orleans, like people were taking action many times. So the number of people affected was, was greater than I realized, because these cones of uncertainty, I mean, the, the science is, we're, we're doing as well as we can, but a lot of people that weren't even impacted were in the cone many times and so i think a lot of people in this region do feel pretty weary even if they didn't take a direct hit in a place like maybe baton rouge or or biloxi or new orleans they, they still were having to prepare and, and and adjust their lives the the other very last thing this is huge uh, you know going into the season we were talking about oh no this could be an active hurricane season hitting on top of a pandemic and just everything's going to be worse the other thing i learned from this in hurricane laura a lot of people evacuated from the Houston Galveston area, like Galveston Island. And uh, it, it's terrible to see a hurric- an active hurricane season with a pandemic. But one benefit was that a lot of people, a lot of kids were doing school online. A lot of people were working online. And so people that evacuated were able to take their work and their school with them. And so in a weird way, the pandemic helped make things more virtual. It enabled people in a weird way to respond a little better to some of the hurricane evacuations. They were able to work and do school on the road. That was something I didn't expect at all this year. Fascinating, fascinating information. And, you know, what's funny is all the science is going to be forgotten. They're just going to say, well, it was just 2020. (laughs) It's just another part of 2020. The zombies are next, you know, so. So, Hal, thank you. Really appreciate it. Great information today. And uh, as always, doing a bang-up job. We appreciate yeah. it. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for doing these virtual uh, presentations. I've gotten so much out of them, and I'm looking forward to the future ones as well. Well, thanks for being such a such a great contributor, and it's great, glad to have you as part of the group. Thank you, Hal. We appreciate it. Dr. Hal Needham, everybody, stand up, applause. Yay, good job. <laughs> Bill Reed, thanks, as always, for uh, great insight, great questions, and the information about Epsilon out in the Atlantic. As always, thanks to our sponsors, Plylocks Hurricane Clips, USAA, and the South Pottery Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. We hope to be back on South Pottery Island in April of 2021, where we can see each other in person once again. Thanks for joining us on Hurricane Center, produced by the Storm Science Network and made possible by USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylux Hurricane Clips. You can find other episodes on hurricanecenterlive.com.